Good morning. Last week, if you were with us, you got to experience kind of a unique, if you will, worship time where we specifically spent some time praying for our nation, uh, praying for ourselves individually, and praying that the Lord would move uh, across our land. A unique time that, that I enjoyed, I hope you enjoyed. But also last week, uh, Rick introduced to us the idea of Billy Graham's My Hope America, a campaign that Billy Graham and, and his folks are, have put out to happen in November, a campaign that we, along with hundreds and hopefully thousands of other churches across the nation, will partner together with. And so as we look at that and as we think about that, one of the things that the campaign does is it asks of you and me that we would become Matthews. Now that's an interesting concept, right? I mean, we, we all know a Matthew. We know there's a Matthew in the Bible. He wrote a gospel, but what is a Matthew? And so this morning, as we introduce this even more, we're going to be looking at that concept. We'll be reading the encounter of Matthew and the calling of Matthew straight out of his gospel. Before we get to that, let us pray, and then we can dive into the word together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for the time that we have here to dive into your word this morning. Father, I pray that as we open up your word that you would uh, reveal yourself to us, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would change us. Father, that you would convict our hearts where needed, you would encourage our hearts where needed. And during this time, Lord, you would hide me behind your cross and you would speak your words of life and hope to us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 9 is where we will be. We'll be specifically looking at verses 9 through 13. Now, we're going to divide this into two sections. I'm going to go ahead and tell you where we're going before we get there. That way, we're all on the same page. We'll be looking at verse 9 for a little while. Verse 9 is the invitation Jesus gives to Matthew. We're going to spend some time looking at that, and then we're going to transition into verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, where we see the invitation that Matthew gives to his friends. Two very interesting things at play here that hopefully in our time together will impact you where you are in your life. So we're going to jump right in and begin in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, and uh, Matthew writes, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, initially, in this invitation that Jesus gives to Matthew, there are a few things that we need to understand. One, this is not the only account in the Bible of this invitation. Luke gives an account in Luke chapter 5, and in that account, we see that Matthew's name at this time is actually Levi, that his original name was Levi, but somewhere along the process, as he began to follow Jesus, his name was changed, whether Jesus changed it whether Matthew chose to change it or someone else came along, his name eventually was changed from Levi to Matthew. This is a, a very common practice. You'll remember it in the uh, conversion of Saul to Paul. Saul was a persecutor of Christians, and as he had his Damascus Road experience and experienced Jesus, Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul. This was a very common thing that happened in this day. And so Levi, or Matthew, as we'll refer to him today, was a tax collector, 
We see that very clearly both in Matthew and in Luke. There are references to this all throughout Matthew's gospel as well. Um, As he thinks about this, there's a couple of instances later on in the gospel where Matthew makes um, a a particular approach to uh, telling us of tax collectors who came. Kind of interesting seeing as he was one, making sure we knew of them. But in Matthew's day and in the day of Jesus, tax collectors were not the most favorite people in the world. A lot has changed since then. Not really. (laughs) Tax collectors were considered scum of the earth, if that even. After uh, the first service, I I was met in the back uh, by one of our members, and he pulled out his, um, I don't even know, it was a tablet. wasn't an iPad, but uh, technology today. And he pulled up, and, and, and right here in this verse, um, later on where it talks about tax collectors and sinners, he pulled up that verse sinners, and it, and it took him to the Greek. He said, i got to show you this. This is really neat. Because the Greek word of sinners there, when we translate it into English, means tax collectors or heathens. They were not thought of very well, tax collectors, in that day. And here's why. There were two reasons why they weren't thought of very well. First reason, they were thought of as traitors. Tax collectors were not a position where Rome sent people to be tax collectors. It was a position where someone from that country approached Rome and purchased the authority to be a tax collector. So tax collectors were people of that land, of that nation, of that people. And so as they sat there at the tax booth collecting taxes, they knew the people who were coming up to them. They either grew up with them, they were the parents of the folks they grew up with, they were the children of the folks they grew up with, they knew the people deeply that were coming to pay their taxes to them. But because they had sold out, and sold out to Rome, they were considered traitors. The second thing they were considered was thieves. It's interesting because they weren't going around, you know, knocking on homes and entering them when people weren't there and stealing things out of their chest. Chest. They were just more upfront and blatant about it. When you came to the tax booth, you would bring your finances right there and the, and the tax collector would, would begin figuring out the taxes that you owed to Rome. And if you owe $200 to Rome, if they figured that out, that you owe $200 to Rome, then he would look at that and he would say, okay, that's $200 to Rome. And then in his head... He would arbitrarily figure out how much you should pay. So if it had been a pretty good week for the tax collector, and Matthew in this case, if you had approached Matthew and it had been a pretty decent week, he'd had a good month, and he pulled it up and he said, you owe $200, he might look across the table and say, that'll be $220. And that $20 extra would go right into his back pocket and would supplement his lifestyle. But had it been maybe a more difficult week or month and Maybe little Johnny went to the dentist and they found out he needed braces. Tax collector probably wouldn't have been so nice. He would have looked it up. Okay, 200. You owe $300 today. And that extra 100 he would pocket and go to help fund Johnny's braces or whatever else they had. So they were thought of as traitors and thieves. They weren't cared for. They weren't liked. As a matter of fact, they were so hated that for multiple reasons, they had bodyguards 24-7. One was for their protection, one reason, and the other reason was to enforce their taxes. 
if you didn't pay, they just sent their bodyguard on to collect it for them. They were scum of the earth. Everyone hated them. And you can imagine Matthew growing up as a Jew. His life dream probably was never to be a tax collector. I mean, in elementary school, when they they asked him, what do you want to be when you grow up? It probably wasn't a tax collector. But as life happened and circumstances happened and things around him happened, and he just kind of was forced into that lifestyle and forced into that direction, and the opportunity presented itself, he thought of that moment, I'll be a tax collector. I'll purchase this right. Because while he was thought of as scum, there were some positives to come with it. Wealth. Prosperity. Food. House. But in the midst of that prosperity for tax collectors, there was also loneliness. Hopelessness. Because you see, once they bought in and became a tax collector, their family would disown them. Remember first, they were traitors. The family would disown them. The family would want nothing else to do with them anymore. They had disowned their nation. They disowned their family. And so they would push them out and they were on their own, which was fine for a time because they were making money. And that money would meet their needs for a time. But as they kept getting pushed out, the prospect of a future family was non-existent. No one wanted to be associated with them. As the years would go on for a tax collector, they would get stuck in that rut. And most of them would simply embrace the fact that I'm the villain. I'm the scum of the earth. While inside, they were lonely, they were desperate, and they were hopeless. And what's sad about that is in our world today, in our country today, in our culture today, that's far too many of us. Life has kind of pushed us in one direction or another, and we've, we've, found, we've wound up there, and we've found ourselves there for a couple years, for 10 years, for 20 years, for 30 years, and that echo, that hole inside of us is just growing deeper and deeper, and either we've chosen to just accept it, or it just keeps gnawing at us. And what's interesting in this passage is the invitation of Jesus, because Jesus knew very well who Matthew was. It says right there in verse 9, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He knew very well Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was scum of the earth. Matthew was heathen. Matthew was a sinner. Matthew was the wretched of wretched. And when he would refer to sinners later, he meant people like Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, he would refer to sinner, to tax collectors in a very derogatory way. In Matthew chapter 18, he would say to those listening, you don't want to be like tax collectors. So it's interesting that when Jesus is creating his small group of followers, that he would choose a tax collector. And so he walks by Matthew sitting at the booth. And in what seems to be, in all accounts, a very, very short interaction, he says, come follow me. I think in that one invitation, Matthew realized two things. He saw hope. 
He saw that this man named Jesus wasn't scared of his sin. This man named Jesus wasn't scared of the lifestyle that Matthew had chosen. He wasn't scared of the sin that Matthew had created. He wasn't scared of the position of life that Matthew found himself in because there was hope in this man. And so in verse 9, it says that after Jesus said, follow me, he arose and followed him. Matthew, being a tax collector, could have sat there and weighed out the pros and the cons, written it on his legal pad. But he didn't even take the time to do that, apparently. It just says he arose and followed him. There was something in Jesus that Matthew saw that was compelling enough to know, I can put my life on him. Because the one thing Matthew did know is this. He'd already forsaken his nation. He'd already forsaken his family. But he did have a group of people that he could associate with. And that was other tax collectors and sinners. And so in that day, they would typically gather together. They would throw big, lavish parties, and they would enjoy life together because that's the only people who would associate with each other was each other. No one else would dare to enter into that circle and that society. But by following Jesus, Matthew was getting ready to lose that as well. He was getting ready to lose his wealth, his prosperity, and the only group of friends that he had. But there was something in Jesus that was so compelling that he placed his entire life on it. And he arose and he followed him. And then verse 10 picks up, and it's interesting because Matthew just now have probably met Jesus not had much interaction with Jesus probably. Doesn't really know what to do, but he knows that his life's getting ready to radically change. He's getting ready to lose everything, leave everything behind. He does the only thing he knows to do. And it's throw a party. So in verse 10, Matthew writes, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. You see, Matthew, knowing that his life is getting ready to radically change, he does the one thing he knows to do, and it's throw a party. And the only people Matthew has a chance of inviting are other tax collectors and sinners. So he says, hey guys, y'all come. We're having a feast. We're having a party. And by the way, when you get here, I'm going to introduce you to Jesus. We're going to recline at the table because that's what they did in that day. They didn't sit in chairs. They reclined on the floor. We're going to recline at the table. We're going to enjoy food together, and you're going to meet Jesus. And for whatever reason, the tax collectors and the sinners said, that sounds good. My opinion is it's because they were good southern folk, and they enjoyed a good meal anytime they could get it, especially if it was free. But, nonetheless, they came. 
And while they were there, they met and they encountered Jesus. Now, we have no record of if any of them decided to become followers of Jesus. We have no record if any of their lives were radically changed for eternity because of this one encounter. But what we do have is a record of Matthew stepping out, doing the only thing he knew to do, and that was invite his friends, tax collectors and sinners, into his home to meet with Jesus. Now, this angered the religious folks of the day. It angered them greatly. The Pharisees seeing what had happened, they approached the disciples, which I think this is kind of an interesting encounter. This is part of the story where I would love a little more narrative. I mean, I want you to think about this. The, the, the disciples whom Jesus has already asked to follow him, already asked to, to, to join his journey. Most of them were fishermen at this point. Certainly not upper class, hardworking individuals, not scum of the earth, pretty dirty jobs, but you know, hardworking, average, middle class folks, fishermen. They have left everything behind to come follow and join Jesus. And Jesus has the audacity to invite a tax collector into their midst. I would love more interaction there. I would love to know what they're thinking. And I wonder if they weren't on the outside too, kind of looking in going, what is he doing? Like, is this really what we signed up for? Is this really what we've given our lives for? And the Pharisees, the religious leaders come up. say, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? We don't know if any of them had time to give an answer. Maybe they were... Maybe their answer was, we're thinking the same thing. We have no idea. We don't know what got into them. But Jesus, hearing their answer, he responds. And he tells them very plainly, I have not come for the righteous, to which he would later share no one is righteous, but I have come for the sick, for the sinners. I've come for the people where they are because, you see, Jesus wasn't scared of Matthew's sin. And Jesus wasn't scared of Matthew's friend's sin either. He wasn't scared to be associated with them. He wasn't scared of their past, of their present. He wasn't scared of what they have been doing. He wasn't scared of where life had pushed them because he knew he was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, the awful author of hope and life and joy. And he knew that he had the power to transform their futures and eternity for the glory of God. He wasn't scared by whatever baggage they brought in with him. So he looked across the room. He said, y'all got to get, y'all got to understand this. I have not come for the righteous. I've come for the sinners. I've come for the hopeless. I've come for the tax collectors who are sitting at the booth in their scorn and in their shame, in their traitoring and thieving lifestyles. I've come for them. Paul would echo this sentiment In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Because, folks, he's not scared of our sin either. He's not scared of it. He's not scared of what position in life we're in right now. He's not scared of what position life has brought us to. He's not scared of even the next few days what's going to happen. Because he's got it figured out. And he's come to offer hope and joy and a life in him that takes care of everything. It's interesting, in, in doing some studies for, for this, there were several things that I looked at. Um, Billy Graham Society did a survey. They did a survey not too long ago. I tried to find how wide the survey was, how many they surveyed, but I couldn't find that number. But they surveyed believers, those who considered them born-again believers. And they asked them this one question. How did you begin your journey to Christ? Not what was the moment of your salvation, but what, what was that initial thing that, that piqued your interest, that initial thing that, that started you on your journey to salvation, that started you on your journey to Jesus? And so 2% of the people replied back that it was some form of advertisement, church billboard, magazine, article, some sort of advertisement. 6% of the people replied back that it was a relationship with a pastor or staff member, some encounter that they had with a pastor or staff member of a church. Another 6% of the people said it was because of an outreach or evangelistic event, whether through a church or a parachurch ministry or something like that, 6% because of an outreach or evangelistic event. It's 14% of the people. 86% of the people said their initial journey began because of the invitation of a family member or a friend. 86% of the people said they are a believer today because initially somewhere down the road, someone was a Matthew to them. Someone invited them. Whether it was they invited them into their home, invited them to church, invited them to an event, invited them to Sunday school, invited them to a party, invited them to dinner, invited them to wherever, a family member or a friend invited them. 86% of believers. And I would bet if we polled the audience right now, we would see a very similar trend. That's what being a Matthew is. Being a Matthew is two things. It's one, accepting the invitation Jesus has for you, no matter where you are, no matter what life has brought you to and through. Accepting the call of Jesus on you right now to follow him. But then being a Matthew is also number two. And it could look different for everybody in the room, possibly. Simply inviting folks around you to experience him. Matthew had a bunch of food and he had a house. So he invited them to the table. And there they met Jesus. We don't know if they accepted him or not. 
but we know they were invited. Maybe you have a boat and a fishing rod. Maybe you have golf clubs. Maybe you have a car that's headed to Columbia Mall. Doesn't matter. Would you be a Matthew and would you invite someone in on the journey? In November, we have the opportunity to partner in this process and we will be engaging and encouraging you as we head into that over the next few months to consider being a Matthew and inviting folks into your home to experience Jesus. But as it stands today, in July, have you accepted the call to follow him? Have you accepted the invitation of Jesus to follow him? And if you have, would you consider following the example of Matthew? Inviting those around you, family, friends, maybe even scum of the earth, to experience him with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power in your word. And Lord, we thank you that you are not scared of our past. You're not scared of our sins. You're not scared of our failures. You're not scared of where life has brought us. It doesn't intimidate you, Lord. Because, Lord, you know that you are the hope of the world. And you have come with the promise of giving us life. With the promise of transforming us out of who we were and into who you're calling us to be. So, Father, I pray for each of us in the room today, Lord, that you would continue to transform us. And Father, I pray that you would challenge our hearts and maybe our mouths and our hands and our feet to be those who would follow the example of Matthew, a brand new believer who did the only thing he knew to do and invite folks to experience you. Lord, I pray that as we step out in faith, that you would allow us and those we encounter to experience your hope and your life. So in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.